I heard a story this past week from R.C. Sproul. And in the story, he was sharing about a friend of his who served with Wycliffe Bible Translators. And she worked with this tribe of people for over 10 years. And she was seeking to translate the Bible into their language. But she had a little problem. All of their communication was completely by speech. So they didn't even have a written language. So she had to take on the task of learning their language and then creating a written form of it and then teaching them how to read and write. And after all that work, then she was finally able to translate the Bible. And she decided to start with the Gospel of Matthew. But to save time, she skipped the genealogy of Jesus. And finally, when all of her work was done, she got it printed out and sent there. And the people took it, and they couldn't care less about it. And she was extremely discouraged, but she continued on, and in her second edition, this time she included the genealogy of Jesus. And the people received it, and the chief of the tribe was reading it, and he summoned her to his tent. So she goes, and he says, what is this? And she said, well, that's the genealogy of Jesus. And he said, wait, so this Jesus that you've been trying to tell us about, he really lived? And she said, well, of course he lived. And it was through the genealogy that he understood that. And soon after, this man came to saving faith in Christ because he believed in the promises of God. And that's what this passage here is about. It is more than just a list of names. It is a record of God's promises being fulfilled in Christ because he is faithful. And there's two ways in which God is faithful, and we're going to see that throughout this, throughout this whole sermon. First of all, he is faithful to his word, and secondly, he is faithful to his people. Now, as we look at verse 1 here, we see that this passage is the genealogy of Jesus. The same word for genealogy here occurs in verse 18, where it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. So when we read that this is the genealogy, this is the real start of Christ as a man. It's not in verse 18, but in verse 1. Now among the many people listed here, we're going to focus on Abraham, David, the women, and of course Jesus. But before we look at these people, we need to ask ourselves, why would Matthew break 400 years of silence with the genealogy of Jesus? Why would he trouble himself to do this? Well, it's because he understood his audience. So Matthew had a Jewish audience. So to the Jew, the very first verse here would have totally captivated them. Because he says, I am going to provide you with the genealogy of the anointed one, of of the promised Messiah. And he knows when the Jew hears that claim, their mind is going to go to one thing. Was this, is this Jesus truly the son of Abraham and truly the son of David? So now Matthew has made this claim, and in the following verses, he, he proves this claim. But I want to spend a moment looking back at the original promise that God made to David and that God made to Abraham. So if you can, turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. 
Now, to provide you with some context here, leading up to this, in chapter 11, all of the people of the earth had the same language, and they were all united in pride, and they said, come, let us build for ourselves this city with a great tower, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the whole face of the earth. So God sees this, and he says, come, let us cause confusion in their language so that they may not understand each other. And he causes confusion, and the people disperse across the face of the earth, and then follows this genealogy where it ends with Terah dying, and he is the father of Abraham. So the only thing we know about Abraham at this point is that his father's name is Terah, and he's married to this barren woman named Sarah. Now look at verses 1 through 3 with me in Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now notice here what God says. He says, I will make of you a great nation and a great name. Now remember what just happened. All the people of the earth migrated together, they had the same language, and they were all working together. God sees them and says no to them. Now it would seem a lot more sensible from human perspective to choose that whole group of people who are already working together. But instead God goes to Abraham and he says, I will make of you a great nation. Years go by, and in chapter 15, God says, Abraham, come outside and look at the stars. Can you count them? And then he says, so shall your offspring be, and it will come through your every very own son. Now, Paul points out two things that we just read in Romans 4. First of all, Sarah was barren, and second of all, Abraham was so old, he was as good as dead. And yet he did not waver in faith, but instead he was fully certain what God promised he would do. He trusted in the word of God, even though it didn't make sense. So we see here, Abraham understood his problem, but he trusted in the promise. Now take a look with me at David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7, and we're going to look starting in verse 9. So the word of the Lord, it comes to Nathan, and God says, go tell this to David. Look at verse 9 with me. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. Doesn't that sound familiar? Look at verses 12 and 13. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. This is referring to Solomon. And then there's a transition here. Okay, right after this. He shall build a house for my name, that is Solomon, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So it goes to Solomon and then through Solomon, there's this, etern- there's this eternality to it. So it goes beyond Solomon to Christ. 
And we see this theme of this eternal kingdom, and it starts here. Now, in verse 6 of Matthew chapter 1, David here is not just called David, but he's called David the king. So Matthew in this genealogy is trying to show something, that this is not just a bloodline, this is a royal line. So we have David the king, Solomon, Rehoboam, Abijah, Asaph, Jehoshaphat, Joram, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, Manasseh, Amos, Josiah, Jeconiah. All of these were kings. And notice here, some of these kings were good, like Asaph and Jehoshaphat. And others were evil, like Rehoboam and Joram. But they were all equally a part of the providence of God. And the purpose of these kings in the list is all the same, whether they were good or bad, because they all lead up to Jesus, who is the king of kings. So see here the greatness of our Lord, because though king of all, he humbled himself to be an infant and left his throne for a manger. And yet he came into this world with every right to reign as king. But I would like to remind you in John 18, Jesus is brought before Pilate, And Pilate says to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, do you say this on your own accord or are others saying this about me? Pilate responds, am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And then Jesus says this, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. And instead of being delivered by his servants, he was delivered up to be crucified and was stripped and given a scarlet robe and a crown of thorns, being mocked as they said, Hail, King of the Jews. A good king, a good ruler, at best, demands justice, but only the king of kings can satisfy justice, and that is what he has done. So we looked briefly over the promise made to Abraham and David, and I want us to notice three similarities between the two of them. First of all, God sought them and chose them to receive this blessing. They did nothing to earn it. In fact, they didn't even ask for it. And in the same way, there is no one who seeks after God, but is he who freely chooses his own people to show his mercy to. Second, though there were times where they failed, God was still faithful to his word and faithful to them. We just finished the life of Abraham, and we saw there was many times where he failed, and yet God was still faithful. And the same is true for all of God's people. Even though you fail, he is still faithful. Three, they both did not get to experience the promise fulfilled. But because God said it, it was as good as done to them. So we see here that God is not always fast in fulfilling his promises. He does not act in our timing, but is accomplishing his purposes as he sees fit and when he sees fit. Now consider the women. First, notice the selective group here that Matthew chose. He didn't choose this full, detailed, comprehensive list. And yet he goes against what was normally done, and he includes women. 
Alistair Begg commented on that, and he said, what we can learn from that is that in Christ, the excluded are included. And we see it here in this genealogy. Look at Tamar. This is the first one we see on the list. For those of you who don't know Tamar, she's told, your father-in-law is going to Tinma to go shear his sheep. So she goes to the entrance at Inim, which is on the road to Tinma, and she veils her face and she waits for him there. And he sees her, and he takes her for himself. And as a payment, he gives her his, his signet, his cord, and his staff. Three months later, someone goes up to Judah, and they say, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, is pregnant. She's been immoral and is pregnant. And Judah says, well, let's burn her for this. And she says, well, do you want to know who got me pregnant? And she pulls out the staff and the signet and the cord. And Judah looks at this and says, well, she's more righteous than I am. And then she gives birth to twins named Perez and Zerah. Look at verse 3 in Matthew 1. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Look at the sin here. Look at the mess that is in here. But let us learn that God is not confused by your sins or by anyone else's, but that he uses it to accomplish his will. And we see it here with all the other women, too. So we have the first woman here, Tamar, who pretended to be a prostitute. What about the next woman? The next woman was Rahab, who was a prostitute. How about Ruth? Well, she was a very godly woman, but she was a Moabite. She was an outcast. How about the next woman? Look at verse 6. And Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. So, So the next woman here isn't even mentioned by name. Uriah was the husband of Bathsheba. Bathsheba left her own husband to be with David. And then David tries to cover it all up and tries to get him drunk and send him back to to his house to be with his wife, he doesn't do it. it. There's such a mess here. Look at the sin that we find in this genealogy. And Matthew is intentionally showing it. And what's so interesting about this is that when David and Bathsheba, when they had Solomon, they were married already. And yet Matthew here still labels her as the wife of Uriah. So this not only highlights the sin of Bathsheba, but also of David. So we're not just looking at the sins of those who are not in Christ. We're looking at the sins of Christians, of people who are in, of God's own people. So then, consider your own sin. Think about your iniquities, about your transgressions before God. And see here that this genealogy is filled with sin just like you are. You name a sin, and I'll give you a name from this genealogy. And I'm certain that we can all relate to these people more than we would like to confess, and probably more than we even can understand. But it's for people like that that Christ came into the world. Not for the righteous, but sinners. Your sin is great indeed, but if there is one thing this genealogy has more of than sin, it's grace. Remember the words of Paul, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. 
2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, a sinner's sake, a vile sinner's sake, became poor, so that you through his so that you through his poverty might become rich. J.C. Ryle commented this, If Jesus was not ashamed to be born of a woman whose pedigree contains such names as those we have read today, we need not think that he would be ashamed to call us brethren and to give us eternal life. He truly is the friend of tax collectors and sinners. Do you see the grace here? Church, The promise of Jesus is not just for Abraham, and it's not just for David. It's for sinners. It's for people like you and me. Now, you may be here today or watching on the live stream and be thinking, you don't know how unworthy I am. You don't know what I've done. And while that may be true, remember this. No one is too far away from the outstretched arms of grace. For from his fullness we have all received, not just grace, the Apostle John writes, but grace upon grace, abundant, free, unmerited, sweet, amazing grace. And many of us, if not all of us, have heard that hymn, Amazing Grace. And as John Newton was laying on his deathbed, he he softly whispered this to a friend, Although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. That I am a great sinner, and that Christ is a great Savior. And that's the gospel, isn't it? That's the promise that we hold to. John Newton writes in Amazing Grace, The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. Are you standing on the promises of God? There's one last point here I want, to see with, I want us to see with the women. Notice here the wives of the men that this starts with and ends with. So we have Abraham, whose wife was Sarah, and then we have Joseph, whose wife was Mary. So it starts with a barren woman and ends with a virgin. And that is to show that from beginning to end, that this was fully and totally the work of God. That nothing here was by accident, and it didn't just merely happen to work out this way. But that God was precisely, intentionally, and perfectly accomplishing what he said he would do. God is true to his word. Now, as the people as a whole in this genealogy, I want us to notice here that God chose the least promising candidates and made his promises to them. But why would God do that? Why would God choose them? Well, I think Paul gives us some insight. And if you can, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. First Corinthians chapter 1. And we're going to start in verse 26 through 31. Why would God choose them? Look what the words of Paul. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. 
God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So why did God choose these people? The same reason he has chosen you, to show his greatness, so that no one could take credit for this at all. Now consider one point about Christ, and it's a simple one, but it's something important to see. That the list of names here ends with Jesus. Now from that we can learn this, that the promises of God find their fulfillment in Christ. So it all rests on God alone. And that is why David was able to say with confidence, the word of the Lord proves true. So then, how should we respond to the word of God when it comes to us, when we read it, when we hear it preached? Well, how did Abraham and David respond? In Genesis 12, we looked at that. God made him his promise, and God said, I want you to go from your kindred. And right after this promise was made, in verse 4, Abraham goes. So we see that Abraham obeyed the word of God. And David, in 2 Samuel 7, when God gave him this promise, David responded and he rejoiced in prayer. So we see that Abraham obeyed and David prayed. But notice that both of their responses stemmed from a trust in God's word. Abraham wouldn't have gone if he did not believe what God said. And likewise, David wouldn't have rejoiced in prayer if he did not believe in God's promise. It was trust that moved them to respond as they did. So there are two points of application that I want for you. First of all, to receive the word of God in trust, knowing that he is faithful to his word and to his people, and that he keeps his promises. Now, second, if I can summarize what Abraham and David did, what they did was they worshipped. The same thing that Mary did when she found out she was going to bear a son and his name would be Emmanuel. The same thing that the wise men did when they were seeking him. They worshipped. And as King of Kings, he is altogether worthy of our worship and adoration. Let's pray.